But Y is supported by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings may vary. This is But Why, a podcast for curious kids from Vermont Public Radio. I'm Jane Lindholm. On this podcast, we take questions from kids like you, and our whole job is to find answers. It's a pretty awesome job. If you have a question you'd like us to look into, we'll tell you how to send it to us at the end of the episode. Now, sometimes you send us questions that we've never even thought of, or questions that are really silly. Sometimes you send us a great question, but we've already answered it. Or we've answered one that's very similar, and maybe you missed it. This, today, is our 40th episode, and we've answered more than 175 questions. It's no wonder you've probably not heard them all. So today, instead of answering new questions, we're going to go back to a few of the questions we're still hearing from you that we answered in earlier episodes— It's our Frequently Asked Questions, or FAQ, episode. Here's a question that we've heard from a lot of you in recent months. Hi, my name is Kian. I'm six years old, and I live in California. And my question is, why does each country speak a different language? Hi, my name is Vincent. I am eight years old. I live in Jinnobie, Australia. And my question is, why is there so many different languages in the world? Hi, my name is Yandere. I live in Pretoria, South Africa. I am eight and a half years old. My question is, why do people in different countries speak different languages? My name is Avery. I am seven years old. I live in South Hero, Vermont. And my question is, why can't everybody speak the same language? That is such a great topic. We tackled it in one of our earliest episodes. In that episode, we asked linguist John McWhorter to help us get a better understanding. A linguist is someone who studies languages. John was helping us tackle the question of who invented words. And he says the earliest people probably invented words in Africa about 200,000 or 150,000 years ago. So they would have been the ones who first came up with words for things. And then they would have passed those on to their children. And that would have kept going until... You and me. But that doesn't explain why we speak so many different languages. Language changes all the time in the same way as the clouds in the sky are always moving. If you look up and you see the clouds looking one way today, then you don't look up tomorrow and wonder why the clouds aren't in the same places. They're always moving. Language is the same way because the sounds are always changing a little bit. If you have a bunch of people and one bunch goes in one direction and live there forever, and one bunch go in a different direction and live there forever, then not only is everybody's language changing, but languages change in all sorts of different ways. So if you have a word tray that means tree, with one group, tray is going to turn into tree. 
But then in another group, tray might turn into something like try, and then that becomes tra or something like that. It used to be that people lived apart from one another, and people on one side of a mountain might never see or talk to people on the other side of a mountain. So all those languages would change or evolve independent of one another. The people on one side of the mountain might be changing in certain ways, but they didn't know what was happening on the other side of the mountain. That's why there are over seven thousand languages spoken in the world today. But the number of languages in the world is shrinking. Some have only a few speakers. We still have mountains, of course, and we still live in different places. But technology, like cell phones and movies and the internet, have meant that we're not as isolated as we used to be. And some of the dominant languages, like English and Chinese, Spanish, Hindi, and Arabic, are becoming more common. We tend to be talking more and more like each other. More and more people all the time speak. English, in addition to whatever other language they spoke, but after a while, their kids might not speak the other language. Their kids might just speak English, and so we have fewer and fewer languages as time goes by. Some people think that in about a hundred years, we're only going to have four or five hundred languages left. John McWhorter says that's too bad because languages don't just have different words. They tell you different things about the people who speak them. So if we lose language, we lose a lot of knowledge about different cultures. Be sure to check out the whole episode if you want to learn more, including why our alphabet is in the order it's in. The episode is titled "Who Invented Words." Another question we have heard a lot since we started this show is a variation on this one. My name is Logan. I am five years old, and I am from Jericho, Vermont. And my question is, how did the first person get to the world if there was no mommy and daddy? We took on that mind-blowing concept not so long ago with a paleoanthropologist named Adam Van Arsdale. That's someone who studies early humans. We talked a lot about a concept called evolution. How living things change over time, and how we know when the first human beings came into existence. That episode is called "Who Was the First Human." The whole episode is dedicated to that topic, and we look at it from a lot of different angles. So I'm not going to play any part of that back today, but check it out if you're interested. We are, though, going to take a listen back to a couple of questions you've been asking about our bodies. The first one is about something that. Happens to all of us and can be really annoying. Doctor Lori Raisha joined us for two episodes all about our weird and wonderful bodies, and she says hiccups are a bodily function that develop really, really early, like before we're even born. But exactly why we hiccup is a little bit mysterious. One of the things that really makes sense to me is the response to hiccups、um, after eating. So there's a nerve that actually runs on the underside of the stomach, and your stomach is a little bit like,、um, you know, size-wise. It's if you take your hand and you kind of make a fist. That's about the size of your stomach、um, when there's not really a lot in it. Now, when you eat food, that stomach expands and gets bigger, kind of like a balloon that you're blowing air into. But this is your eating food. And when that expands, it triggers that nerve that's on the underside of the stomach to say, "Oh, I'm getting expanded," and it causes this funny little contraction、um, 
of the muscle in your um, chest, lower chest, that involved with breathing called the diaphragm, and it causes these hiccups. And so when, um, as you get older, it's almost like the body gets more used to this, right? That, oh, okay, the stomach, it's kind of predictable. They're eating again. The stomach's going to get bigger. And you tend to have fewer hiccups as you get older. Now, you can, many kids can have learned that they can kind of make themselves hiccup by swallowing a lot of air, and that can also make you burp. Um, is it triggered by laughing? When you laugh, you do tend to swallow a lot of air, Laughing and crying, actually, both are situations where you can develop a lot of um, air in your stomach. And again, I think that can trigger trigger the hiccups, too. And sometimes hiccups just happen, and it's not related to eating or anything else. How do you get rid of hiccups? Dr. Raisha recommends drinking some water, and she says there's actually some evidence that having something sweet can maybe help a little bit. She says there's no proof that standing on one foot or standing on your head works. And she doesn't think you could actually scare the hiccups out of someone, though that's probably the most fun for the people around you. I'm Morgan, and I am 10 years old, and I'm from Lavernia, Texas. And my question is, why do your fingers get pruny when you stay in the water for too long? We just got that question from Morgan a little while ago, and we've heard from a lot of others of you who've looked at your fingers and toes after a long bath or a day at the pool or the beach and wondered the same thing. That's one of the questions Dr. Raisha helped us out with, too. I admit I didn't know this answer when I got this question, so I had to do a little research. And then I found out there is no general agreement of why this occurs. There's a couple of different theories. Theories are just ideas of of why this happens. And so um, let's talk a little bit about how the skin is made up, and then we'll talk about what these two theories are. So the first is that um, the skin, again, is made up of two kind of layers, an outer layer called the epidermis and a deeper layer called the dermis. And it's the outer layer, the epidermis, that's involved with getting wrinkly in the tub. And this doesn't happen immediately. I mean, as we all know, you go swimming or you go in the bathtub, and it's usually you've been in there for 20 minutes or so when you start to notice it. Um, So in this outer layer of the epidermis is something called keratin. And so keratin, is its job is to keep your skin kind of strong and together and to also keep it moist. Um, now, keratin gets, you know, old with time, too, and so it can kind of die, and it's in your skin, and it's it's just kind of sitting there as these dead cells. And when those dead cells get subjected to water, one theory is that they kind of absorb water again, almost like a sponge. And as that starts to swell, it forms some wrinkles, Okay. And so my next question was, well, if we have skin everywhere and we have keratin in this layer of our skin everywhere, why is it just our hands and feet? Yeah. Um, and so looking at that a little bit more closely, I found out that our hands and feet are the part of our body that do the most work. And so they have the thickest layer of keratin. And so it has the greatest opportunity to swell when it's in the water. So that made a lot of sense to me. And then I was reading a different theory, which said that when we have wrinkly skin, our ability to pick up objects, especially when our hands are wet, is much improved. It's kind of like having good tread on your tires on, mm. a, on a rainy day, mm-hmm. um, that you don't slip and slide as much, and that this could be something that our autonomic nervous system does. 
cause. And so how I explain the autonomic nervous system is it's all of the things that are being done in your body that you don't have to tell it to do. So you don't have to tell your heart to start, you know, to keep beating. You don't have to tell your body to breathe. Um, these are all things that your body can do on its own. And so the autonomic nervous system may just sense you're in a slippery environment. It would be better for you to have better tread and may cause the skin to wrinkle. You should go back and listen to the two episodes we did all about our bodies. We looked at whether yawns are contagious, why humans don't have tails, what makes us dizzy when we spin around, and lots more. Coming up, why are leaves green and the sky blue? But first, a message for the adults who are listening. We have support from Paramount Pictures' new movie, If, in theaters May 17th. This movie introduces audiences of all ages to be a curious young girl with the ability to see everyone's imaginary friends, a.k.a. ifs. Get it? Imaginary friends? B joins forces with Cal, an adult who can also see ifs, and together they embark on a magical adventure seeking to reconnect forgotten ifs with their long-ago kids. Ryan Reynolds brings comedic energy to the film alongside precocious new star Kaylee Fleming. If you have or have ever had an imaginary friend, let if answer what if everything you believed as a kid was real. If is in theaters May 17th. In this episode of But Why, we're listening back to some of our most popular questions that you guys keep sending us. We still haven't done an episode about the Big Bang or about space, and we get a lot of questions on those. And we're thinking about doing a whole episode about trees, too. Plus, we want to look at why money is so important in our society. But in the meantime, we have answered questions about why plants and flowers are different colors. For that, we turn to Charlie Nardozzi, a garden expert here in Vermont, where we're based. Flowers have many, many different colors, and the reason for all the different colors really is flowers are an attractant. They're trying to put on a show. It's like a beauty show. It's like, come see me, come see me. And so they're trying to attract the bees, the butterflies, the hummingbirds, all those insects and creatures that will pollinate them. And because certain insects, certain hummingbirds, certain butterflies will be attracted to certain color flowers or certain kinds of flowers or certain shaped flowers. So in order to make their attractiveness the most attractive <laughs> for the biggest group, they try to come up with a shape and a color that's going to bring people to them or bring these creatures to them. They want to attract them in there so that they can have more seed and have more of their own kind of plants. Really, their whole purpose in life is to make seed so they can keep going. So that purple flower is saying, hey, butterfly, look yeah, at yeah, me. Yeah, look at me. I'm beautiful. Look come at me. over and come say over. hello. And they come in and they pollinate it and you get the seeds and the seeds disperse and the, and the plant is very happy because it's like an old grandma saying, oh, look at all my grandchildren and great-grandchildren <laughs> have done so well. <laughs> Do you know why, what makes a plant purple and what makes another flower red? What are the different ways that 
colors are created within the plant? Well, it, within the plant, there are chemicals, uh, call them pigments. And so uh, based on what kind of pigments you have, uh, those are the colors that will actually kind of exhibit. So the interesting thing about pigments kind of goes into the other uh, question. Uh, I think there was Ari that had about the uh, white trees and plants are green, is that you know we have this, this visible light spectrum, you know, the spectrum of light that we see is only a small spectrum of what's actually out there. And within that spectrum is all the colors of the rainbow. And so certain plants will absorb certain colors. And the way it works is that if it absorbs that color, we don't really see it anymore. So if it absorbs blue or red, we don't see that. But most plants can't absorb the color green. And so that's why leaves are green is because we're actually getting a reflection of that green spectrum of light um, back at us. And the same thing is coming true with all these different flowers. So if you have a red flower, it's reflecting the red back or the purple, the purple back. So uh, the plants need those different spectrums of light to grow, but they don't often absorb everything or all those spectrums. And so that's why we see the different color flowers. But let's talk a little bit more about those green leaves, the ones that are on trees. How can they be green in summer and then change color in the fall? That's what happens for deciduous trees. Lots of you have sent us questions wondering about it, and we talked to a forester. My name's Mike Snyder. Foresters are the professionals with extensive knowledge and experience about our forests, and our main job is to take care of forests and to help people interact with forests in healthy and sustainable ways. We benefit so much by the leaves being green. All green plants are green because they contain a pigment, which is a chemical that makes a color. Uh, The chemical is a very important part of what goes on in leaves that allows leaves to make their own food. Chlorophyll is the chemical within the leaves that not only makes it green, but allows it to harvest sunlight and use that with water and minerals from the soil to make food for themselves, starches and sugars that they use to grow and live. And it really, it's that process of photosynthesis is based on chlorophyll being formed in the leaf. And when it's formed in the leaf to allow that making of one's own food, it just happens that it looks green. It is actually reflecting the green wavelengths from the sun. The sun is transmitting electromagnetic radiation onto this planet, and which we all receive. It's a beautiful sunny day. That sunshine has many different wavelengths of light. It's absorbing a lot of the blue and red wavelengths in the process of photosynthesis and reflecting green. And that's what our eye is picking up on, and that's why it looks green to us. It's the reflected wavelengths of light from the chlorophyll within the leaf that look green to us. Okay, so the leaves are green when they're making chlorophyll. That's their food. So what's happening in the fall? We know a lot now about the science of fall foliage and the colors and why and how they develop. I want to be clear that we don't know everything, and some of the magic and the mystery of it still exists. That said, much of the science that's been conducted right here in Vermont um, has helped us understand the process. Why do the leaves turn color in the fall? First, remember, not all of our trees have leaves that turn color. We have some trees that are called evergreens because they remain green throughout the year. Our spruces and pines and firs and cedars. The the rest of the trees, what we call hardwoods or broad-leaved trees, they don't keep their leaves on through the winter. So this is the key. As the summer turns to fall, 
We notice the days are getting shorter, the amount of daylight. The trees can tell time that way too. And they are triggered by the shortening day length to say, we got to get ready for winter because we're going to drop our leaves. Well, they spent all summer building that leaf, creating the chlorophyll in the leaf and refreshing it on a regular basis. That's an expensive kind of machinery, and they've invested a lot in it. So this is in a way of sort of recycling that the tree does. As the days get shorter and the tree kind of knows it's time to prepare for winter, one of the first things it does is it stops making chlorophyll. That means the green color fades. And what that does is it unmasks a couple of other colors that were there all along, but were overwhelmed by the green from the chlorophyll. These pigments, the carotenoids and xanthophylls, are producing yellow and orange colors. And so when the chlorophyll stops being made, the green color dissipates, and that kind of unmasks the yellow and orange colors. Then, as the fall progresses and we get some cool nights, not freezing, but cool, it triggers yet another pigment, the anthocyanin pigment, another chemical that creates the red colors that happen later as the tree is advancing towards closing down for winter. As the reds begin to develop during the fall season, another process is happening where the leaf is actually forming a a boundary between where the leaf attaches, the leaf and the twig, where where it attaches to the twig. And that's signaling kind of the last roll for the leaf before the wind or rain might blow it or push it off the the twig. The reason they want to drop the leaf is that these broad-leaved, like maples and beech and elm and birch and cherry, their leaves are not as tough as an evergreen leaf and can't withstand snow and ice. So if they were to keep their leaves on during the winter, it would it would really damage the plant. And again, all of it is about the tree knowing that it needs to, it can't run to Florida for the winter and it, it wants to be as prepared as possible. So it shuts down the leaf, the green color fades, the other colors emerge, and then eventually the leaf falls and the tree is not dead. It's dormant. It's slowing down. It's not going to be producing any food for the winter. It's going to live on what it has stored during the summer. But the, the leaves for next year have all been packed away in a bud, in all the different buds throughout the twigs. And the next phase is next spring, after a long winter, when the days begin to get longer again and the temperature starts to rise, the tree says, time to wake up, time to get back to work. And those buds open up and leaves, new leaves for next year, emerge that were created this year in some cases, and then they make new ones as they developed in the next spring. That's called bud break, and when the winter ends and the buds on the trees break and new leaves emerge, there's also a a period of color that happens then because it's a transition time between winter and summer, and you see particularly a nice red hue to those early leaves and uh, as the buds are breaking and before they green up. So we have kind of two seasons of color. The fall season of fall foliage is the most famous. You can find more about leaves at the end of our episode that's titled, Who Invented the President? One more of our most popular questions before we end today. Why is the sky blue? For an answer to that, we thought we'd go directly to NASA, the U.S. Space Agency, to help us. NASA has a website called Space Place that's all for kids. 
One of the people who works there is Jessica Stoller Conrad, and she gave us the scientific explanation for why skies are blue. We see blue when we look up at the sky because of how the light from the sun interacts with our atmosphere. The atmosphere is the layer of gases that's, that's above the Earth. So Jessica said it's blue because of the way the light from the sun reacts with the gases in our atmosphere. The sky above us is filled with gases that we can't see. We typically just say it's air up there, but there are many types of gases that actually make up that air or atmosphere. Sunlight is just plain white light, but white light is actually a mixture of all the colors of the rainbow. So one thing to remember is that light is a form of energy. So when a surge of energy passes through ocean water, you see that as a wave, right? Well, light energy travels in waves, too. And that's important in understanding the color of light that we see. As Jessica said, light energy travels in waves. We can't see those waves like we do in the ocean, but we can see the color they produce. For example, long, lazy, low-energy waves are seen as the color red, while the short, choppy, high-energy waves are seen as blue light. When sunlight reaches the Earth's atmosphere, it hits gases and other particles that are in the air, and the light that's coming from the sun scatters. The shorter, smaller waves that we talked about, the short, choppy ones, are scattered more strongly than the other waves. And since the blue light are those short, choppy waves, the blue light is scattered most strongly, more than any of the other colors. And that's why we see the blue light in the sky. So what about at sunset when the sky turns red and orange and purple and all those other beautiful colors? As the sun sets, the sun looks like it's getting lower and lower in the sky, right? That's because the sun isn't directly above you anymore, and the sunlight is coming at you from an angle. So it means that the light waves have to pass through more of the atmosphere to reach you here on Earth. You imagine the atmosphere is a block of cheese and the sunlight is a knife. If the knife is directly above the cheese and it's cutting through, it takes only a shortcut to get through the cheese to the cutting board. But if the knife is at an angle, it has to take a longer path through the cheese to get to the bottom. The setting sun is like the angled knife. Light from the low setting sun must take a longer path <laughs> to get through the atmosphere and to you on Earth. That means it hits even more gases and particles on its path through the atmosphere. And the more particles it's hitting, the more the blue light waves are scattering all over the place. And at sunset, almost all of the blue light is scattered away. But that means that the longer waves, like red and yellow light from the sunlight, are passing straight through the atmosphere and to your eyes. Why are the blue waves being scattered away? Blue waves are the short, choppy, high-energy waves. And they're more likely to hit these particles in the atmosphere and be scattered. There you have it. When the sun is high in the sky above you, more blue and ultraviolet light waves are reaching your eyes. Our eyes can't really see ultraviolet, so the sky looks blue. But at sunset, when the light has a longer path to get to your eyes, there are more particles in the atmosphere that those blue light waves bounce off of so they don't reach our eyes. And that gives the other light waves, the reds and yellows and oranges, a chance to get to your eyes instead. 
There's a lot more in our Why is the Sky Blue episode. And if you want to know more about the science of skies and weather and get the clouds involved, you should check out our weather show. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you haven't heard some of the episodes we featured, it's all new to you. And if you've already listened to them, this is a refresher. I actually learned a lot going back over these answers. Now, if there's a question that you would like us to try to answer that you think we haven't answered yet, send it to us. It's easy to do on a smartphone or a computer. Have an adult help you record your voice. Tell us your first name and where you live and how old you are and what your question is. And then send it to questions at butwhykids.org. But Why is produced by Melody Baudet and me, Jane Lindholm, at Vermont Public Radio. Our theme music is by Luke Reynolds. We'll be back in two weeks with an all-new episode. Until then, stay curious.